This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We were filming in India in a park called Bandhavgarh Tiger Reserve. In some areas, it's super dense. The understory is incredibly thick. So you can't see more than five metres off the dust tracks that you're driving along. We'd often just stand there listening in pure silence. Sometimes all you're listening to is for one call that will take you to that tiger. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that crawls into the thickest jungles, crouches in the undergrowth and listens for hidden stories about the natural world. And it'll just be one bark of one deer somewhere in the forest. And you know that if you miss that, you're potentially missing out on the best thing that's going to happen that day. This week, we're playing hide and seek. We've got stories about searching high and low for animals that don't want to be found. Stories about camouflage and subterfuge and staying very, very quiet. And about what happens when you find things you weren't quite expecting. Our first story comes from this man. I'm Theo Webb. I'm a director on the Dynasty series uh, for the programme Tigers. Theo found that when it came to finding a relatively small tiger in a very large forest, it was less about using your eyes as using your ears. The female that we were following is called Raj Bearer. She's not collared. She's, you know, we, we have no idea where she is. So every day is starting afresh. So each morning we'd drive into the park and you'd see the footprints that she and other animals had made in the sand. And basically it acts like a newspaper every day. You, you, you read what's happened the night before. And from that point we'd kind of sit and wait and we'd listen for any sounds and it's the sounds that then help you localise where in that part of the jungle she actually is. And so you're listening for three main sounds. You're listening to the langur monkeys, which have a sort of a barking call. They have an alarm call for leopard and they have a different one for tiger. They, they call for a lot of different threats. So the next one you listen to is the cheetah, which is the spotted deer. And they're a sort of medium-sized deer that tigers love to eat. So they're really on the lookout for tigers and leopards mainly. So you can narrow down the threat to tiger or leopard once you hear the cheetah calling. And they're a sort of a screaming bark kind of sound. And then the most sort of defined call is the call of the samba deer, which is more of a sort of guttural guttural squeak it's, it's a very strange call um, and that really is what determines that it's most likely a tiger in that area 
So we'd listen for each of those alarm calls. And often what you can actually do is you can hear the alarm call moving through the forest and you can actually follow it. You can determine which way it's going to go. And the guides and the drivers will know roughly the kind of path that the tigers will take through the jungle. And lo and behold, the tiger would often walk out just exactly where they said. And they are so expert at that that it, was, it made our life a lot easier. If the tiger has been hunting, you will hear an explosion of alarm calls. And it won't just be one, it will be dozens. Often the cheetah live in, in herds or groups of, you know, 10 plus. So you'll hear nothing and then you'll hear... And, and, and this sound will echo through for it. And you know at that point you've A, missed a filming a hunt and B, you've got to go there quickly because you might see her, you know, eating, which would be great. I think what's amazing is, is getting in touch with your senses in a way that you don't do in the modern world. So you're so surrounded by sound in modern Britain that it's very hard to escape that. And when you're in a jungle like you are in India, there is often just bird song. There's just natural sound anyway. Especially in the heat of the day, you've just got one pitch. You've just got cicadas. And to then be straining your ears so much, it's almost like you're focusing your ears to a certain frequency, the frequency of monkey, let's say, and you're just listening for that bark. And almost everything else is filtered out. And I think that's quite an extraordinary experience as a sort of modern day human to be listening to that, especially one that lives in a city. That's kind of quite a unique thing to do nowadays. So I think the most interesting thing that happened in terms of sound was actually hearing the tiger's call. I'd spent time out in Bandavgar before and I don't remember hearing them as much as I heard them when I was there filming for Dynasties. And they are actually incredibly vocal as cats. They roar a lot. And you don't expect that of tigers. You, you, you know, lions and other cats call quite frequently, but tigers, it was a real surprise to hear them call so much. And their calls carry a really long way. Um, when they're mating, it's a hell of a lot of noise. It's, it's low growling during the actual mating. And then at the end, there's this huge explosion where the female is sort of turns around and swats the male and this huge, like, kind of, yeah, roaring match is great. That was the most surprising thing for me, is hearing the tigers calling as much as they did. The BBC natural history teams spend a lot of time trekking out into wild places, deep into animal habitats, to see how they live. But it goes both ways. Sometimes animals come into our territory too. In fact, at times, it's debatable whether it's our territory at all. Well, Bangkok was kind of built on pretty prime snake habitat. It was kind of like a marshy wetland swamp. That's Sam. And those animals there, you know, kind of two choices. They can deal with it and they can adapt or they have to relocate. Uh, yeah, Sam's so a snake researcher. Samantha Smith, and I'm currently researching the spatial ecology of Burmese pythons. And she helped make an upcoming BBC series all about animals who make their lives in amongst ours, called Cities, Nature's New Wild. Looking into python-human conflict. 
She's based in the Sakharat Environmental Research Station around four hours north of Bangkok in Thailand. So we have the reticulated python here in Bangkok, which is the longest snake in the world. Not the largest by weight. That's the anaconda, but definitely the longest. I think the largest ever recorded reticulated python was over nine meters. So really huge, but it would be pretty remarkable if you found one over four or five meters in the wild. They don't move a whole lot. They really just live a pretty laid back and sedentary lifestyle. But pythons have seemingly mastered adapting to living in cities. They're really good at finding nice, safe, dark places to hide. There's a lot of them in a big city like Bangkok, lots of nooks and crannies, pipes, vacant lots where they've started construction, they haven't finished. You can read stories in the news about people finding pythons in their trucks. There's canals all throughout Bangkok and reticulated pythons are pretty great swimmers. So it's very easy for them to travel remarkable distances without really having to worry about people coming across them. If they had to, they could go months without eating. So once they find a safe spot, they're able to kind of hole up there for quite a while and greatly decreases their chances of being seen by people. You know, you can expect anywhere where there's snakes and humans, there's bound to be some sort of conflict there. People keep chickens or geese or ducks for food or it's part of their income and it's just taken and there's no real reimbursement for that. You might have people that have a small dog or a cat, maybe that gets taken. Pythons have taken people um, before but it's super super rare and definitely not what you would expect. It creeps people out more than anything I think. You know how in some countries there's a stereotype about clueless city dwellers calling the fire service out to rescue cats stuck in trees? Well, they have that in Bangkok too. But it's snakes. All throughout Thailand, there's first responders that respond to you know fires and natural disasters. But they also respond to snake calls. People are able to call these firemen and they come and take the snake. They find them everywhere. Anywhere relatively quiet and undisturbed is prime snake habitat. They pull them out of attics, crawl spaces, and from under spare beds. Or, in a lot of cases, from your plumbing. If you Google, like, pythons in Bangkok, you'll likely find an article about a man that was using the restroom and he had, like, a squatting toilet and the snake came right out and it grabbed his man parts and yeah I can imagine that was pretty traumatic experience for him. That's kind of like the infamous python story. I think that they get a lot more snake calls than they actually do calls to respond to fires. When I went to go visit the fire station they had easily 200 reticulated pythons. There comes a point where they can't hold all these snakes anymore and they relocate these snakes in nearby national parks. You know Translocating snakes can be pretty dangerous for their health. They may prioritize getting back to their home range over getting the resources that they need. So it's just really difficult to find the balance of helping the snake out, but also helping humans live in harmony with snakes. And that's just the million dollar question. It's just really difficult. And I don't think there's a great answer, but I also think it's important to talk about and to think about.
Да. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the BBC Earth podcast. And today, we're playing a game of hide-and-seek with stories from the natural world. Except it's not really a game of hide-and-seek out in the wild. It's not really a game at all. Tigers and snakes are both predators. They hide in order to better sneak up on their prey. For the prey animals, it's not so much hide-and-seek as hide or get eaten. The stakes are pretty high. And you know what comes in handy when you're hiding from things that might want to eat you? A really good disguise. Stick insects kind of evolved this quite stunning array of camouflage. At the most basic level, they mimic sticks, and it's fairly convincing, but there's also a huge variety of other mimicries going on. So, Ed Baker works for the University of York and the Natural History Museum in London. He works on grasshoppers, cockroaches and those masters of disguise, the stick insects. There's Extatosoma, which can mimic either dead leaves or lichen. Extatosoma tiaratum, also known as the spiny leaf insect or the Australian walking stick. There's other ones in Colombia and South America which mimic mosses. One of my favourites is the leaf insects, so it's evolved to be very, very flat like a leaf. They also tend to have like little yellow spots or brown spots. Sometimes they look like they've got little bit nibble marks around the edge of a leaf. So it really does give a very good impression of a leaf that's on a tree, not just the idealised version of a leaf. And it's not just the adults. So you get into these what we call mimicry complexes, like Ecstatosoma, where the adults mimic leaves, the eggs mimic seeds, and those are collected by ants and taken into their nest. So there's a group of parasitic wasps which attack stick insect eggs. And so being inside an ant's nest gives you some protection although there's quite a lot of evidence that the wasps are now evolving to mimic the ants as well. So there's a huge set of complex mimicries going on. When you think about it, it's like a weird kind of superpower. All you have to do is stand still and you vanish into the background. Well, it turns out that the stick insect technique is not actually terribly effective. They get eaten all the time. Things like dragonflies, monkeys, birds, lizards... Other insects, so praying mantis will eat stick insects, spiders. So they're pretty vulnerable insects, and they're fairly big, so they make a fairly good, decent meal. And there's another mysterious thing about stick insects. 
they turn up in odd places. They're found on every continent except Antarctica. You even find them on tiny islands miles away from the mainland. Allow me to tell you the mysterious tale of the Lord Howe stick insect. Lord Howe Island has or had quite a unique set of flora and fauna. It's off the coast of Australia, between Australia and New Zealand. And then a ship wrecked on the coast. The SS Macambo in 1918. There were rats introduced to the island which have eaten quite a lot of native species. And one of these was um, this rather large stick insect called Lord Howe Island stick insect, which they thought went extinct. The Lord Howe stick insect is big, about the size of the span of your hand, and it's chunky too, unlike a lot of stick insects. They're shiny and black, and their nickname is the tree lobster. It was declared extinct on Lord Howe Island in the 1920s, but fast forward 40 years, and a group of climbers found a thriving population. There's an island um, a long way from Lord Howe Island, Bull's Pyramid. I'm not sure how it got its name, and it's not particularly pyramid-shaped. It's almost like a needle sticking out of the sea with a couple of straggly bushes on. And you know, they found this stick insect living on this volcanic stack decades after they thought it had gone extinct. How it got there? It's really hard to say. <laughs> how does something that survives by basically not moving manage to travel so many hundreds of miles across the ocean? And so there's two plausible routes now. And so they found that if certain birds eat adult female stick insects, some of those eggs pass through undigested and a small fraction of them will hatch, which is a very neat way of getting from island to island. Other researchers have taken the eggs and put them in seawater, and they also survive being in seawater for up to a year, which is quite extraordinary for insect eggs. Stick insects don't just imitate plants visually. They've actually adopted a very plant-like way of getting around, too. Plants, of course, can't move, but their seeds travel many thousands of miles in the stomachs of birds or floating on the ocean. Turns out the tough little stick insect eggs can pull the same trick even if they're still inside the female stick insect when she gets eaten. Stick insect eggs are quite unique in insects. They're quite large. And they also have a coating, a cryon, which is a very strong structure. And so these eggs are probably more able to survive quite a range of harsh conditions. So certainly drying out, immersion in seawater and passing through the gut of a bird. Well, it's probably not that successful in a purely numerical sense. So these insects will weigh you know, maybe 300 eggs, maybe a lot more than that. And on average, only two of those from each pair that mated will survive. So it's, it's not great as a numbers again, but it's enough for them to continue to exist. For people who live and work in nature, finding elusive animals, whether to film them or study them, can be a challenge. Finding rare animals, even more so. The Holy Grail, surely is to find a new species that no other human has ever seen before. Well, how about discovering an entirely new ecosystem? I first saw Mount Liko back in 2012, but it took me basically the best part of five years to actually go and have a look at the place. This is Julian Bayliss. I'm an ecologist, a conservation scientist, also an explorer. Part of his job is to search the world for places where the plants and animals have been relatively undisturbed by human activity. And modern ecologists like Julian have a lot more high-tech tools at their disposal than you might think. Things like the use of satellite imagery, the use of drones, uh, camera trapping. Julian was a scientific advisor to a new BBC series coming out in 2019, Earth from Space, 
which shows how satellite imagery can tell the story of life on our planet from a brand new perspective. So I was using satellite imagery for this region of northern Mozambique and I was looking for undisturbed patches of forest. What was interesting about Mount Liko, which is the site we're looking at, is when I looked on the satellite imagery, the surrounding land was all very heavily cultivated and then there was this volcanic-like structure with a basin of dense forest. It's not a volcano, let me just say that now. It, it looks like a volcano, it has a basin, it has a sort of crater edge. But these are Inselbergs that were formed maybe 150, 500 million years ago. An Inselberg is a steep-sided hill or mountain made of rock that rises all on its own out of an otherwise flat plain. And the surrounding land is basically weathered to expose these lumps of rock, if you like. And the questions then arose, you know, maybe maybe you can't actually get up and into this forest, or maybe the sides of the smooth granite rock face are so sheer and so smooth that there aren't any paths to get up there. It was similar to a sort of a eureka moment. I mean, looking down, I saw it and I thought, hey, this is it. This is, this is extremely interesting. In the basin of this crater-like uh, mountain was dark patch of dark green forest, which was exactly what we were looking for. And indeed, when I talked to local communities around the base, they said that they knew of nobody who'd ever been up there. So that was tremendously exciting. So that really sparked the interest in, in organising a full-scale scientific expedition to come and have a look at this place. First of all, I had to calculate how the hell do I get to this place. <laughs> I, I worked out which tarmac road was the nearest one, and then I left the tarmac road and I started driving through the African bush on, on the various dirt roads. I could see the mountain in the distance. So that was a moment because that was the, a reality moment where everything up until that point had been, you know, through satellite imagery or remote sensing. Um, and then I could actually see the mountain in the distance for real and that was also a very exciting moment. I got about six kilometers away and then I had to walk. So then I walked with my backpack and the drone through the bush until I got to the base of it. But even when you get to some of these sites, they're still inaccessible, and that's where the drone would come in. To be honest, I was very new to drone technology on my first visit. I bought the drone specifically to go and have a look at Mount Liko, and that was really the first time I'd used it properly. So, I mean, I'd be flying this thing for maybe the third time. I'd also done a program, sort of a mapping program. It's like an automated thing. So I started it off on that, because I wasn't trusting my own manual flying skills, to be honest. But then the drone went over the crater edge, so then it lost its line of sight with my remote controller in my hand. And then the whole thing stopped, and then all of these emergency lights went on, and messages came flashing up, drone lost, drone lost, no connection or anything. I thought, oh, here we go. I uh, just uh, wasted you know, a certain large amount of money on this. But but they are fairly intelligent things these days, and it basically turned around and followed its flight path back home and landed pretty much in front of me. So it was only the third battery, my last battery, my last flight of the first visit, that I decided to turn off all the safeties, take it up manually, and fly it up and over the forest. And that's basically what I did. But again, I'm flying it off my mobile phone here. So I can see forests sort of emerging from the screen of my phone. And then it was only that evening when I took out the camera card from the drone and put it into my laptop, then I could see that we'd actually got it. We'd actually got exactly what we needed, what we were coming for. And the whole of the forest was there, 
in lovely resolution and definition and you could see you know even vines and creepers coming down from the trees and and birds flying and stuff like that it was really the first view of a lost world if you like after nearly losing his drone in 2017 julian mounted a full expedition to mount Lico the following year fully equipped with climbing gear to scale the sheer rocky face the two climbers had rigged uh, the climb going up the lowest face of the mountain. Uh, we had our base camp set up a couple of days before. The two climbers had tied off the ropes at the top, but really hadn't gone any further into the forest than, than the crater edge. So I got to the top of the 125-metre rope pitch. I unhooked myself, and I thought, there's a bit of time here before anybody else arrives. So I walked into the forest. The moment I first arrived in the forest was, was, was a very special moment to me. It was very still, it was quite quiet. I could see animal tracks all over the place, uh, small mammal tracks through the undergrowth. There were many butterflies flying. Um, but the whole place was, was quite still. Um, it was like a little bit of a time capsule, if you like. Uh, but there was an amazing sense of awe and wonder and uh, also reverence for walking into the forest. Um, walk very quietly and very, you know, gently. We find several new species. The results are still being analysed. Um, I found a new species of butterfly, which is very nice. I'll be naming this one after the mountain. I'll be named after Mount Lico. It looks like we found new species of amphibian and possibly freshwater crab. We are still awaiting the results of the small mammals but I'm expecting new species of small mammal and reptiles. One thing we did find on the mountain that was very surprising is we found some pieces of pottery. We found three upturned pots at the source of the stream, which originates from the basin and flows off the mountain. The fact that they were at the source of the stream, the fact that they were actually turned upside down, made me think that probably that it's actually some form of Sangoma, a spiritual offering, a medicine man has gone up there at some point in the, in the past, God knows when, and how he got up there we have absolutely no idea. And this was some offering to the gods to keep the streams flowing so they could have uh, fresh water to irrigate their crops down below. Uh, like I say, the local people know of nobody who's ever been up there in their lifetime, so these pots are very, very, very old. I think most children go through a phase of drawing maps. I certainly did. Treasure islands, mostly, and I don't think mine were terribly original. Here's the pirate cove where I'd land. There's mermaids there, probably. Here's the village on the edge of a blue lagoon. There's the forest where the monkeys live, and no self-respecting island is complete without a huge, pointy, snow-capped mountain right in the middle. Or a volcano, depending on my mood. And liberally sprinkled across all my maps were small crosses with the words, here be monsters. Of course, in an age of satellites and jet planes and the internet, it's easy to think that there are simply no more new places for us to discover, that we've mapped our planet exhaustively from space and charted all the uncharted territories. Which is why Julian's work is so exciting. Satellite imagery isn't taking the mystery out of our world. It's a tool to help us find it to find places like Mount Lico that very few human beings have ever set foot into. And to find whole species who've been quietly and busily living their lives generation after generation without ever crossing our paths. Scientists believe that we've managed to name and classify less than a quarter of the species we share this green and blue planet with. 
depending on the estimate, there's likely to be anywhere between five and eight million species out there, completely unknown to us. Perhaps there are monsters on our maps, after all. Thanks so much for listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and if you liked what you heard, then please do subscribe, give us a rating or a review wherever you found us, and tell everyone you know. And of course, join me again next week when we'll be bringing you more stories from the natural world around the theme of family. Some of the stories you heard in this podcast came from the storytellers and makers of BBC Earth's latest landmark programme, Dynasties. Narrated by Sir David Attenborough, we follow the lives of five extraordinary animals, each in a heroic struggle against rivals and against the forces of nature, fighting for their own survival and for the future of their dynasties. Visit bbcearth.com forward slash dynasties for more information on when you can catch the series in your country.